Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to yet another shut-in edition of Political Rewind. Thank you so much for joining us for our show today. Um, I think many of you are shut-in. Those of you who are actually out in the workforce, uh, at retail stores that are still operating, at restaurants that are doing uh, usually carry-out service at this point, uh, people who are doing work like collecting the garbage in communities all over the state, um, we welcome you to uh, listen to the podcast, if not to the live radio show. And and if you do listen, I hope you hear how grateful I know all of us are that you are still out there keeping our uh, services alive when we really need them. Um, I've been getting a lot of emails from you because I asked you to let me know how you're doing. I was telling Lori Geary, who I'm going to introduce more formally in a minute, we were talking before the show, she I said, I asked her how she's doing, and, and she's doing okay. We'll ask her about that. I told her I'm starting to get a little squirrely doing the show out of the house every day, and I'm sure many of you are too. So that's why I continue to ask you, send me an email. Let me know how you're holding up. Let me know about the problems you're experiencing. Uh, you can easily contact me at B-N-I-G-U-T, B-N-I-G-U-T at gpb.org. I've been reading all your emails. Last weekend I tried to respond to most of them, and at this point – uh, let's try another thing. I haven't read any of them on the air, but if if you do want to send me an email, let me know at the top that you think it's okay for me to read this uh, on the air. Otherwise, I will not do that. All right, we've got a lot to talk about on the show today. Uh, let's get right to it. As I said, Lori Geary is here. She's the former political reporter for WSB-TV, and of course, she is the host of Georgia Gang, which airs on Fox 5, W-A-G-A-TV, on Sunday mornings at 8.30. Uh, Lori, like us, have you pretty much stopped talking about electoral politics and gone straight to uh, coronavirus? Yes. I mean, the whole focus of the show on Sundays is now about Georgia's response to the coronavirus and how we're all handling it. So... um, we talk a little bit about politics, a little bit about the election, but it's all coronavirus related. Yeah, I would imagine it would have to be. By the way, do you mind telling people, I've talked about being kind of shut in, squirrely in our houses. You don't mind sharing with people where you're doing the show from this morning, do you? <laughs> no, not at all. So I'm a mother of two, a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old who we are now you know, homeschooling like so many other parents in this crazy world. So I found the quietest room in my house, which is my car, parked in the driveway. And so I've had to tell my kids, if mommy's in the car, please don't interrupt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're glad you could be uh, with us. Theron Johnson is also with us today. Theron, of course, has been a Democratic consultant for a long time. Uh, One of the credentials that I know he is very proud of is that he ran uh, President Obama's re-election campaign. We oversaw the Southeast campaign uh, in the re-election effort. And uh, Theron, you continue to do more and more work, I think, for nas- at the National Democratic Party level, right? Yes. Um, and unfortunately, you know, all that's sort of been put on hold with the virus, the COVID-19 virus. But 
there is still an election going on. Uh, I think Democrats and Republicans are just trying to figure out uh, how do you uh, get through this crisis? And then, you know, hopefully in the next couple months, we'll be back to campaigning again pretty uh, robustly. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's a show that at some point I'd really like to do. And in fact, the two of you would be great panelists to talk about just that, your thoughts about how we are going to move forward with campaigns. But today we have you here for a different reason. Uh, Lori and Theron are the co-marketing chairs of the Georgia state effort to make sure that we have a uh, as full and accurate account, a, a count uh, in the 2020 census. What's that effort called again, Lori? Everyone count. Is that what you mean? Yep. That's what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, so let, let go ahead. I was just going to say it's a statewide effort with more than a hundred local complete count committees who are working overtime in unprecedented times to try to get the word out about the census. And so Farron and I have been traveling across the state to every about every community in Georgia to also spread the word, and that work has come to a stop. So we are messaging now with social media, um, and the television ads will start because we know we have a captive audience right now. Many folks are at home watching television, listening to the radio. Uh, Theron, I believe this is the first time that uh, anybody can uh, go online and complete the census on uh, on a website that's been set up by the Census Bureau. And in fact, uh, I just did that the other day. I got my letter from the Census Bureau telling me that I could do it online. It assigned me a specific number that would identify me. And it really only took me about 10 minutes to complete the whole form. And at, at this point, uh, it, given what we're dealing with the coronavirus, that seems like it could become an increasingly important tool, Theron. Absolutely, Bill. And, and first, thank you for completing your census. As Lori and I, Lori just mentioned, we've been going all across the state for the last, you know, four or five months. Unfortunately, we can't do that physically anymore because of the coronavirus. But exactly what you explained is what we're really encouraging all your listeners to do today. I mean, it is really, really simple. Um, that form that you get in the mail from the United States Census 2020, um, when you read the letter, uh, it has what is called your census ID. And as you mentioned, Bill, you go to my2020census.gov. I repeat, my2020census.gov. You click the button to uh, say start the questionnaire. And once you type in your code, uh, which is uh, a combination of letters and numbers, uh, it takes you through a series of questions, and it only takes 10 minutes. I mean, I cannot stress that people can literally fix a cup of coffee right now. Uh, by the time you fix that coffee and let it cool down, um, you can go online, complete your census, and it gives you a uh, option to print your receipt um, when you're done to make sure that you have it. But this is really, really a big deal because this is the first time uh, in our history that you're able to complete the census online. So I just encourage everyone, even if you receive the form, uh, even on the form, you can also um, go to my2020census.gov and on that form, you will see your ID as well. And so you can fill out the form the traditional way, but we're just encouraging people to really take advantage of this downtime and go online today 
to complete their 2020 census form. And Bill, if I can so, just Lori, there's for a one little... second there. If Go ahead. you have not received your any information in the mail, if you haven't received any type of communication from the U.S. Census Bureau, you can still go online without that code and fill out your form. You just have to fill out your address. It's just the code allows you to enter less information. That's all it does. It makes it a little bit easier. But if you do not have that code, it's okay. So let me, but let me ask you a question, Lori, uh, as long as the ball's in your court. I was a little confused when I got the letter from the Census Bureau because it told me I had to reply, or it appeared to tell me I had to reply by April 1st, which I did. I did it on Saturday, thinking that I had to beat a deadline. But in some ways, that's a little misleading. You don't want people who aren't responding by April 1st to think that they're no longer capable of doing that, right? That isn't really a deadline, is it? Absolutely. Please. April 1st is not the deadline. April 1st is considered census day. And the U.S. Census Bureau came up with this day to really get awareness and education, to have rallies and to get people excited that, hey, go online, fill out your form. April 1st was also the day that enumerators would kind of start going out into the neighborhoods and knocking on doors. That has now been delayed. We can talk about the repercussions of this, but that has been delayed by two weeks. And so we always said the deadline to fill out your census form, the day that you don't want people knocking on your doors to say, why haven't you filled out your form, right? Who wants anybody knocking on your door, whether it's in traditional normal times or or especially now during this pandemic? So this was kind of an arbitrary day of like, okay, fill out your form. We were going to have news conferences across the state with the governor. It was going to be a really big deal um, to make sure that people are aware of how important the census is. And Bill, something that we really haven't talked about, a lot of your listeners know about the importance of the census, but there are a lot of folks out there, especially millennials, who've never done a census form. So they don't understand really the importance of it. And Darren and I, when we travel across the state, we talk about two major reasons, right? It's funding and it's power. And I just want to give two quick examples of how, how these really matter. Number one, in rural Georgia in the last census, we lost five state house seats and two state Senate seats to uh, Metro Atlanta. And that's because one response rates, right, because they're they're lagging and they're currently lagging right now in South Georgia. So we really want to get those numbers up. And also it's about funding. All of the federal dollars that we spend, we send to Washington, we want to get that money back. And for instance, Fulton County, I just picked Fulton County because it's the biggest county in the state. 30% of people did not respond to the census 10 years ago. For every person that does not respond, it's about $2,300 per person per year that we lose in funding. And so when you multiply that over, just let's multiply that just by 300,000 people, you're talking about $700 million per year that Fulton County could be losing out on just because people did not fill out their census forms. Um, Theron, uh, Lori points out that uh, you're already monitoring uh, the response rate from uh, the state and that already it's lagging in South Georgia. Uh, Sam Burmis Dawes, our producer, pointed me to a uh, page on the census website which can actually show us how the responses are coming in across the country, state by state. And according to that website, as of this week, uh, there's been 30, about 33% response 
from people in Georgia. 32.6% of the people who've gotten the forms have responded. I I don't see a county-by-county breakdown on this map. But I do think here's another element of that, Theron, that's interesting, is this same page shows that in 2010, the self-response rate was not terribly good in the overall 62.5%. So, I mean, that highlights how important it is uh, to hear Lori's message that if we're not getting a higher rate of return, we're going to lose out, Theron. Lori does a really good job okay. of stressing that point. But the one thing I want to say is, is that, you know, we do have uh, access to those numbers. And you're right, uh, Bill, the uh, response rate in 2010 was 62%. Lori and I are both very competitive, as well as Governor Kemp and everyone on the state complete count committee. We want to try to get that number up to 70 percent as close as we can. But what we're seeing um, in the numbers is that when you look at where we were, say, March 21st, um, we saw a sort of very scaled but sort of uh, average response, not a great response online. And then we tracked it seven days later. And we got to March 28th, and we did see a significant increase in those seven days, particularly of people that are actually utilizing the Internet option to fill it out online. You know, when I look at counties, I'm just going to pick on my home county, uh, Clark County, which I'm from Athens, Georgia. You know, in 2010, uh, they had a 63% uh, response rate, Uh, but on 321, um, they were only at about 12.2%. Of, I'm sorry, seven. Um, I'm sorry, 17.8 per two. Some 17.8 percent responding, and out of that 17.8, roughly uh, we've seen about a 12.2 increase, uh, which now Clark County is at about 28.6 percent, uh, which you know we rounded up to about 30 percent, and and largely that increase we've seen is because people are filling it out online. But then when I look at counties like Chatham County, because I know this is a statewide show who in 2010 responded at about 61%, um, they've got a total of roughly about 28% thus far of people that responded. So while Clark County is sort of smaller in size and we know that Chatham County is larger, we definitely want to get both of those percentages up. And that's why we're on your radio show this morning, just encouraging everyone to do exactly what Lori and I are encouraging folks to do. And that is to just go online, whether or not you have the census ID, um, to go ahead and complete. I mean, it really takes less than, than 10 minutes because this is a competition, and the more people respond, the more funding uh, we get to our state. So I just, again, just want to stress the importance of taking advantage of this online opportunity that we have. So, um, you know, uh, Theron and Lori, the people who are regular listeners to the show certainly are, are aware of the fact that we've been pointing the show to uh, conversations about coronavirus for the last two and a half weeks, because clearly it is the most important thing happening in the state. And, and so they may say to themselves, well, you're not talking coronavirus this morning, you're talking census. But the reality is that beyond the online abilities that people have to fill out the form, uh, the Census Bureau still relies on enumerators to go out into communities that may not have access to high speed, let alone any internet at all, uh, to people who have other reasons why they don't fill out the form. And those enumerators are often going into underserved communities, minority communities, I think it's safe to say, 
And now, uh, with the shelter in place, social distancing rules that we have across many cities in Georgia, uh, Lori, there is some reason to worry, is there not, that enumeration is going to be much more difficult and, and that we could lose a big part of the count if there isn't some way to enumerate people in door-to-door efforts. This is a really big concern, and we were already hearing from folks, especially down in South Georgia, who are concerned about the undercounted populations there. Um, the enumerators who go door-to-door, I mean, they were already, the U.S. Census Bureau was having career fairs and job fairs to try to recruit folks to, you know, become a, a census worker and become an enumerator. But the unemployment rate, you remember before this, was so low that that was a challenge. And so um, perhaps maybe with so many people filing for unemployment, um, it might be a little bit easier to fill those positions. But remember, these are folks who are going door to door, knocking on doors. And a lot of these folks were in the higher risk category, these enumerators who, you know, might have might be a little bit more. I don't want to see elderly, the older folks who don't mind, you know, going in and, and really this is a call to service right for their U.S. government. So this is going to be a challenge. And even even on the front lines in the local communities, a lot of our local complete count committees were counting on face-to-face interactions with folks, um, whether it be at restaurants, at festivals. All of those things have been canceled. And so now we're relying on TV, on radio, and also on social media to get the word out. And Bill, if I could just go through, if you know anybody any of your listeners are, are listening from these counties or you know somebody in these counties, please get the word out because we're talking about Stewart County, Quitman County, Calhoun County, Telfair, Wheeler, Hancock, and then in southeast Georgia, McIntosh County. These, these counties are all under about 15% in response rates right now. That, that's unbelievable, and we really are, are focusing hard on these counties But I want to do the flip side, too. I want to congratulate two Georgia counties who are doing an amazing job of responding to the census, and that's Fayette County and Heard County. Um, They're hovering around 43 percent right now. So congratulations to those two counties. Keep that momentum going, and let's continue to spread the word. Um, Theron, it's interesting that the Census Bureau, I believe I've got this right, which was going to have enumerators in the field starting just about now, has delayed it uh, that until April 15th. But I, given that even the president of the United States is now saying we should can maintain social distancing, we should practice other safe ways to avoid transmitting the virus or getting the virus till the end of May, I would think that it's unlikely that you're going to get enumerators in the field as soon as two weeks from now. And as the, as the dates are pushed back, does it have any impact in the long run on being able to do a count here? In other words, do we reach a point where an accurate count with enumerators uh, simply isn't feasible? Well, I think the one thing that I'm very confident about, Bill, is if if anyone knows what the White House and what the president of the United States is going to do regarding spending some of the uh, shelter in place and, and, and encouraging all Americans to uh, utilize social distancing. I think the U.S. Census Bureau would definitely be in that room in that conversation. I want to commend the census for extending um, the uh, time that the enumerators will go out into April 15th 
But what I think that also it sent a very clear signal to us as Georgians to really go ahead and utilize the online capabilities. Now, I believe that based on um, if this continues to, to get worse and we can't have people going door-to-door enumeration uh, happening in the United States, then I do think that the online uh, feature will help us make sure that we get these numbers counted accurately. However, you do still need these enumerators because, listen, we all need reminders to go out and to make sure that we complete our form. But I have a great deal of confidence in the U.S. Census Bureau's ability to continue to communicate with the executive branch of our federal government, which is the White House, to make sure that they also understand that if we have to extend deadlines based on the coronavirus, that we take into account that how important the enumerators play a role. And I also want to say this to Lori's point. I've been really proud of some other counties that have done great jobs as well. Um, you know, just to name three, Forsyth County, Upson and Houston County have done a really good job of, um, you know, getting people to go online and to complete their forms. But ultimately, I just think we cannot wait. I just want to stress that again, the importance of not just depending on these enumerators to go out and knock on our doors. We must go online today and complete our census forms. And that way we can help the federal government make sure they get the right count. All right. Um, I appreciate that conversation. I'll tell you what I'd like to do, uh, Theron and Lori. Uh, you know that uh, we're about to be joined by a, a special uh, guest for our show today. Uh, we lost Dr. Joseph Lowry last week, one of the great, great American civil rights leaders. And um, the coronavirus has uh, kind of overshadowed our ability to think about him, talk about uh, the legacy of his work, uh, but uh, thank goodness today we're going to take some time to do that. And after we take a break, um, we're going to be joined, Lori and Theron, by uh, Ambassador Andrew Young, who worked closely with Dr. Lowry for so many years. So we'll take a break right now and come back and talk about Joseph Lowry. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. As I said before the break, we've uh, been focusing so much on dealing with coronavirus across the state of Georgia that we haven't had time to sort of take a deep breath and talk about the legacy of Dr. Joseph Lowry, who died last Friday night at age 98. So we're going to do that uh, for the rest of the show today. Uh, Lori Geary and Theron Johnson are with us. Both of them, like me, certainly had interactions with Joe Lowry over the course of their careers, but no one had as much involvement with him on this show as did Ambassador Andrew Young. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today well, to no, talk about Joe Lowry. Thanks for inviting me, and thanks for discussing what you're doing about the, the census. That's, you know, that's the kind of thing that Joe Lowry would have been working on through SCLC and through all of our affiliates, because... Uh, the census is also directly related 
to voting rights and reapportionment. Uh, and um, what I think we don't realize is that once Dr. King was killed, uh, SCLC didn't go away. Uh, and much of that for the rest of the 50 years or so uh, was led by Joseph Lowry. And uh, he and C.T. Vivian, who is still with us, uh, had a network of affiliates that went from Charleston all the way out to East Texas and from Mobile uh, all the way up into Kentucky. Uh, and they did voter registration. They did census work. Uh, in uh, Alabama, they organized farm workers, uh, the Southwest Alabama Farming Cooperative, uh, and and they put southern farmers into catfish farming uh, because we realized that in order to have an independent vote, uh, you had to be independent in the economy. Uh, and so uh, that lasted really until, I, I guess it was the Chinese got into the catfish business. And, and then um, you can't run a farm. You can be a preacher till you're 98, uh, but it's kind of hard to be a farmer past 75, say, or 80. And so uh, we kind of outgrew uh, or outlived uh, the businesses that were started there. But uh, at the same time, all under Joe's leadership, uh, um, Bernard Lafayette went back to uh, – I think University of Rhode Island, and got his doctorate, and he started a nonviolence program across the South, uh, and he became president of SCLC after Joe Lowry. Uh, but his working with universities on nonviolent training and social change was not just South. He was all over the world. He was in Nigeria. He was down in the... Um, in the in the uh, Columbia and uh, working with the drug lords and trying to resolve problems down there, uh, we were just spread out. Uh, James Orange, you may remember, great big guy, six four, about three hundred pounds. I went to South Africa long before Mandela got out of jail, and started registering voters in South Africa. Uh, and um, let me um, let me ask you. All of this was part of Joe's leadership in SCLC. That never. Let me got jump in coverage. if I can. And, and, so and let me jump in if I can. I, I want to bring. We did it with so little money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me if I can, uh, and I want to let uh, Lori and Theron join this conversation as well. But let me. Uh, uh, Dr. Lowry was a good 10-plus years older than you are. Uh, how did you – do you remember the first time you met him and what the circumstances were? And, and how do you reflect upon Joe Lowry as a person? Because I bet Theron and Lori will share with me a feeling that just knowing Joseph Lowry and the kind of, the kind of charisma, the kind of person that he was – his kind of 
sense of humor, the literal twinkle in his eye because he was so, you know, bemused by so much of what he saw at the same time that he was gravely concerned about injustice. He was really kind of a remarkable man to know. And I wonder how you first came into connect, to contact with him and how that relationship developed. Well, uh, I think the first time I met him was at the SCOC convention in Chattanooga. Uh, in 1961, and I had just started with the citizenship education program, and he was the chairman of the board then. And, uh, of course, nobody knew me. I was from New Orleans. I'm not a Baptist or a Methodist. I'm a Congregationalist, United Church of Christ. Uh, But I had been down in South Georgia, in Thomasville and Beechton, Georgia, in a little country church, and I'd served churches in Alabama, uh, in Marion and Selma area. Uh, so I knew the South, but the South didn't know me. <laughs> and um, there was always a little tension and rivalry uh, amongst the preachers in SCLC. And, of course, the Baptists were supposed to be the greatest preachers. Uh, but Joe never would give in to that. He'd always say, these Baptists... Uh, can preach, but um, they spend too much time hollering. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> of course, I won't have any trouble with you because you, you, you Congregationalists don't preach; you all lecture. <laughs> and so <laughs> you, you, you start uh, getting picked on uh, for being different. Uh, and but it was all in good humor, and. Uh, but um, when I came down, I came down with a separate grant uh, from the Marshall Field Foundation, so I wasn't subject to them under money. I was bringing money to SCLC that I had helped raise and, and, and that came from a project that uh, Mrs. Septima Clark started in South Carolina. In fact, that's another thing you could say, that um, Jim Clyburn's... Uh, of voice heard across the country for Joe Biden. Uh, his parents were part of our SCLC workshops in literacy training uh, and voter registration. We covered every county in South Carolina so that the impact of South Carolina probably could be traced back to the ministry of Joe Lowry um, and uh, the AME bishop, uh, John Adams, uh, Theron, let me jump in if I can't. Let me jump in. Theron, um, and I apologize because we're doing this all by phone. I, I'm, I'm not meaning to be in any way uh, rude, but it's, it's kind of hard to get our signals as straight when we're not in the studio together. So I, I apologize, uh, Ambassador Young. I'm, I'm really not trying to cut you off. I, I, but Theron, one of the things that's interesting is Andy Young and, uh, and uh, Joe Lowry went separate directions when it came to the, 20, uh, the 2008 presidential election, the Hillary Clinton-Barack Obama battle for the Democratic nomination. Uh, Andy Young can tell us that, of course, he supported Hillary Clinton. Joe Lowry Theron was a fierce advocate and uh, campaigner on behalf of Barack Obama, Right. Well, well, first of all, Ambassador Young, it's, it's good to hear your voice, and I owe you a call. So thank you for sharing it. so much so much history with 
um, which you know about Dr. Lowry, and also give uh, Carolyn my best. And also definitely want to highlight the role that Evelyn Lowry played in right. Reverend Joseph uh, Lowry's life. But, yes, I was front and center in that um, bill because I remember vividly in 2007 that one of the first stories I heard about uh, as a young man who was attending the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, this was an organization that met every week over at the um, Atlanta Life Building that Dr. Lowry was the head of. And I remember sitting in one of the meetings uh, vividly. I think Ambassador Young and others were there, Janice Mathis from Rainbow Push. And he came back and he told this story about then Senator Barack Obama and that he was filling the movement that was going on in this country that was surrounding him. And so Reverend Lowry was probably one of the earliest supporters, uh, you know, vocally and uh, visibly and publicly of uh, U.S. Senator, Senator Obama. And what I remember is, is that he was campaigning fiercely for him and not just campaigning in the South, but he went to places like Iowa, New Hampshire and other places. And so he saw something that a lot of us saw uh, in this U.S. Senator. But also um, I'm going to let Ambassador Young explain um, why he supported his longtime friend and supporter. Well, that was Clinton. it. Uh, yeah. Hillary Clinton uh, went to Wellesley, and her roommate was my mother's godchild, uh, uh, Grant Hill's mother. And I had known about her since her graduation, uh, you know, at 20 years old. And she had worked with my wife, Jean, my first wife, uh, and my daughter, Andrea, in uh, Mississippi with the Children's Defense Fund. Uh, and she was chair of the board of the Children's Defense Fund, which grew out of the Poor People's Campaign. So here's a woman who happens to be white uh, that I have known since she was 20 years old, and here's a black guy that I've never met. <laughs> uh, why should I? And I, I must confess, I did not think that this country would ever elect anybody whatever color they were, by the name of Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> and did Lowry try to talk you uh, into changing shot. your mind? What's that? Did Dr. Lowry try to uh, convince you to go over to Obama? No, he didn't. In fact, he was glad I was not there. <laughs> uh, because <laughs> we, we had, what if Hillary had won? You know, I mean, it, it that... One of the things about SCLC's strength was that we tried to have somebody in every camp. And uh, one of the mantras that came out of uh, the SCLC and the Black Caucus was, we have no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. Actually, the first time I came Lori, to Georgia... Gary, I want to... Go ahead. The first time I came to Georgia in 54, Maynard Jackson's grandfather said, you got to vote Republican down here, boy. <laughs> and I voted okay. Republican. Hey, Lori Gurry, I want to give you a chance. Oh, I can't. Lori Gurry, I want to give you a chance to weigh in. Well, what an honor it is to be on with Ambassador Young. And he reminded me of, of something um, that the Reverend Lowry said to me during an interview. And when Ambassador Young said, you know, I never thought that anybody would vote for, you know, a President Barack 
Obama. And I remember interviewing Dr. Lowry, and I said to him, you know, in, in your whole lifetime, what has surprised you the most? And he, was, he took a, a second to really put it in his words. And he said to me, in my lifetime, in my lifetime, I never thought that we would ever see an African-American president. And it was, he, in a way, it was almost his way of saying, you know, all of my work and all of my sacrifices, all of our work, of all the civil rights leaders, that, you know, maybe it has truly paid off. And I think, you know, for him to sit back and truly realize that, I think he did, you know, and, and that was such a, a, a moving interview that I did with him um, in, in all my years of interviewing him and educating us as journalists and giving his perspective on the civil rights movement. I, I don't think I'll ever forget that interview. Um, you know, he, he was, at, 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 as a result of, uh, of working so hard for uh, President Obama, uh, he got an honored spot at the uh, first inauguration in 2009. He gave the benediction. I said a little while ago that Lowry had brought a joy and a, um, a great sort of showmanship, sense of humor. He was a wonderful preacher. And uh, it's, it's, Tom, why don't we play the second soundbite of uh, Reverend Lowry at uh, giving the benediction at the inauguration? None shall be afraid when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Lord, in the memory of all the saints who from their labors rest, and in the joy of a new beginning, we ask you to help us work for that day when black will not be asked to get back, when brown can stick around, when yellow will be mellow, when the red man can get ahead, man, and when white will embrace what is right. Let all those who do justice and love mercy say amen. amen. Say amen. And amen. Andy Young, that was an example of the way that man preached, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, you know, uh, there are other things that, uh, I mean, as I was thinking about his work and the work of SCLC, which I left. I, I went to Congress and I got in politics, and uh, we're, we're still we still celebrate and should and talk about everything that Dr. King did uh, and John Lewis from sixty and fifty five to sixty eight when Dr. King was killed. Uh, but the work of SCLC didn't stop then. Um, my going into the Congress. Joe taking over the organization, and that organization laid the foundation. Uh, it's just a coincidence, but uh, our California chapter uh, in Oakland uh, invited me out to, uh, when I left the U.N. in 1979, uh, to uh, a, well, it was a Democratic Party dinner. Uh, but the, the chairman of the Democratic Party dinner was Nancy Pelosi, uh, a young lady, and, and I remember it because I got picketed. <laughs> and I got picketed because 
I didn't know what uh, Carposi syndrome was. And that was what they used to call AIDS. Uh, and uh, I insisted on going out and meeting with the, with the pickets. And I said, you know, we ought to, I, I'm, I'm unused to being picketing. I'm a picketer. <laughs> uh, but uh, she and I went out and met with them, and I found out that what they were talking about was AIDS. And I promised them that I would come back to the Center for Disease Control, and I would learn everything I could, and we would find a way uh, to get our country and our city uh, involved in um, in doing something about uh, a ministry to those who were victims of of HIV. And 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 we. Karen, it's promises. important. Theron, it's important to point out in that context that Joseph Lowry was a champion of uh, the LGBT uh, community uh, long before many in uh, the African-American community, especially the religious community, uh, were willing to take that on. But Lowry was right there and and was very supportive of efforts for uh, uh, equality for gays and lesbians. Yes, and he was. And one of the things I want to uh, piggyback on is what Ambassador Young said earlier. And what you, what we're learning from listening to Ambassador Young, Bill, is yes, Dr. Lowry was a giant. Um, he was a civil rights icon. But just listen to the names of people that Ambassador Young is sharing, like James Orange, who I think Ambassador Young would agree with me does not get the credit uh, he deserves for how pivotal he was into the movement. But particularly, the thing that was so amazing about Dr. Lowry is, yes, he brought other people together. He brought people along with him. But he stood up at a time for the LGBTQ plus community, not just in Atlanta, but worldwide at a time where, you know, a lot of African-Americans, we had to evolve in some of our uh, homophobic uh, ways and sort of beliefs about this phenomenal community. And so what he was able to do is to force all of us to think differently and to be more open-minded about um, that community. You know, I have a a cousin who just recently passed away um, who was a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And it took certain members of my family a little longer than it took me to really embrace him. And so this is something that Reverend Lowry will go down in history for being on the front line, fighting for a lot of equal rights uh, and civil rights in our country. Um, Let's do this. We've got to get one more break out of the way. There are a few more stories that I think would be wonderful if we can all share about Joseph Lowry. Um, We've got uh, Theron Johnson, Lori Geary, and Andrew Young with us to do that. Uh, We'll be back in just a moment. Lori Geary, um, I've told this story on our show uh, at least once, but but it's worth mentioning again very briefly, and then I'd love to get your take on this. You know, I moved down here from Chicago many, many years ago now, but I grew up in Chicago. I, in my high school days, I followed the civil rights movement from a great distance into college as well. Uh, and then I found myself in the early 80s living in Atlanta, Georgia, where suddenly these extraordinary leaders— these people who I'd admired from a distance, people like Andrew Young on our show today, people like uh, Joseph Lowry, uh, were suddenly people I got to get to know 
to cover as a reporter and, and got to spend time with these extraordinary people. And, and Lowry was always one of them for me. Um, Andrew Young, of course, he and I, have, I'm proud to say, have become pretty close over many years. But there was always something kind of magical for me about Lowry. And I've sort of said it a couple times already, but there was a charisma there, a genuine twinkle in the eye, as cliched <laughs> as that sounds, uh, that always sat on top of the deep, deep passion he felt about equal rights for all people. D- do you relate to what I'm saying about him? Without a doubt. I mean, these are interviews that, you know, if we would go and interview Dr. Lowry or Ambassador Young for that perspective, they would usually be about 10 minutes. And these 10-minute interviews turned into an hour because we were able to gain as journalists such a deep perspective um, from interviewing um, folks. And I remember there was also a humbleness about Dr. Lowry as well. And right after President Obama bestowed the Presidential Medal of Freedom on him, I was at his house interviewing him, and he's, the phone rang, and he said, hold on. He said, because if that's Rahm Emanuel, the president's chief of staff, I have to tell him that I know you may not think I should have gotten it, but you can't have it back. <laughs> and he would always joke about that, but <laughs> this was such a high honor. And he was like, can you believe me, you know, Dr. Lowry, I got this, you know, incredible honor from the president of the United States. So, you know, there was always this perspective of as as much work as I have done, there's always so much more work still to be done. Theron Johnson, and then I want to get Andy Young on this, too. Theron, one of the other moments of uh, Dr. Lowry's career was the eulogy he gave at Coretta Scott King's funeral. Uh, And and we're going to post it, by the way, a link to it on our social media platforms, because it really gives you a wonderful example of the kind of preacher he was. But one of the things that was particularly interesting about that eulogy was that he had both uh, Bushes, George H.W., George W., and their wives, and uh, the Clintons uh, sitting in uh, uh, in, in the sanctuary. And he actually took that and took a moment in that eulogy to make a remark about the war in Iraq, the fact that there were no mass uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction found, uh, but then uh, moved on to say, but there were, uh, uh, and I don't remember the words he used, but essentially saying what we, what we do have is people, we have poverty in this country, we're not addressing it. And Theron, he's been uh, thought of as, as somebody who took great courage in doing that at the time. Yeah, I think the the term he used was weapons of distraction. And um, yes, that's exactly. Thank you. No problem. Um, And and the thing that I remember uh, about Reverend Dr. Larry, uh, and there's one thing that, you know, when you go talk to Ambassador Young, you better be prepared to hear the truth. Um, And they don't hold back and they want it. (laughs) They want to always make sure you understand. Um, that they speak for a large majority of people in the world, particularly around issues of poverty, equality, and women's rights. And so what Reverend Lowry did, Bill, was just take an amazing opportunity to do a wonderful job of utilizing um, uh, Coretta Scott King, but he took a moment to also let people see him sort of go firsthand against the president at a time where the war in Iraq was just so unpopular. And he, but he did it with so much grace, and he did it with a love of humor. 
but you knew that he was being very, very serious about what he wanted both uh, presidents and a former president at that time to know how that decision was impacting America. One, one of the things that if you look at- we, we'd say about Joe is that Joe could tell you to go to hell and make you look forward to the trip. <laughs> <laughs> the whole congregation at the funeral stood and and cheered wildly when he made that uh, remark, uh, Andy, even as George W. Bush, President of the United States, who was prosecuting that war, was sitting in the front row. It was a, it was a remarkable moment. He took some criticism for it later. There were people who felt he shouldn't have injected politics into a, a funeral uh, oration. But he said, this is exactly what Coretta King stood for. Of course I was going to make those remarks. Yes, Andy? He was right. But he was not offensive. Why don't we do We have a... He, I mean, he was, he, he was blunt, but uh, he shook hands with him afterwards. And uh, I, I think when you're in public life, uh, you're used to getting cussed out like that. <laughs> Why don't we do we're, we're pretty short of time. Why don't you, uh, Ambassador Young, just share with us whatever uh, kind of thoughts at this point uh, before we leave you'd like to about your well, you long know, time associate that, that, and uh, friend. Martin Luther King, Joe Lowry are not dead. Their work lives on uh, in their institutions. Uh, Joe's children... Uh, are involved with uh, the Joseph Lowry Institute at Clark Atlanta University. They're working with hundreds of college students, um, everything from helping them with their lunch money and uh, their their economic needs, but also using them. They'd be a good source uh, to help well, once we get uh, ready to go back and get the census out. Uh, there's a good source of, of student of vision and labor that the Lowry daughters are working on um, year-round uh, through Clark Atlanta University. And uh, I think the important thing, most important thing we can do to honor uh, Joe Lowry is to keep his work alive. And one other thing we haven't mentioned was he was the one, for me, that started the gun buybacks. And he was buying up guns off the streets in Atlanta 20 years ago. Uh, and so it was nonviolence at every level. And um, the truth of Joseph Lowry must continue to be heard and because he, he was basically talk, sharing a vision a vision of what America could and should be. And we, we'll and, never quite get there, but we are always got to keep on struggling. Andy, I apologize again. We are completely out of time. I know there's no way you can be aware of that on the phone. Again, my apologies for the fact that I have interrupted a few times. But thank you so much, Andrew Young, for coming on the show. You're a great friend of Political Rewind, and I appreciate that. Lori Geary, Theron Johnson, thank you for telling us uh, important information about the census. Um, we're completely out of time. I'll see you all tomorrow for another Political Rewind.